Well, I don't know if you heard it if you were in the back, but we blew the big guy, but we can't uh, ignore the little guy. And do you remember what I'm supposed to remember about the little guy? Don't put it by my ear. Okay, yes, I think I'm finally learning that after all these times. So let's see if we can get the little guy going here. That one's pretty sharp. <laughs> that one is uh, pretty sharp. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. Thank you for all your... Uh, your comments and your thoughts. Some of you have had some really good thoughts that I have to think about a little further because we're all learning. And uh, every time I, almost every time I do this tabernacle, I don't know how many times I've done this model, uh, I can't remember, but um, almost every time I do it, it's like I learn something new. You know, there's always different things that sort of, come out and, uh, you know, the Lord shows you different things. And part of that is the interaction with you folks and even the interaction with the young people. So let me read from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at the first verse again. And I'll uh, just give a little bit of a suggested phrasing of some of the words that are here. Remembering that in the writer of the Hebrews writing, he always is referring to He only is referring to two covenants. He's thinking of what he calls the first covenant, which was the Mosaic covenant or the covenant of the law, and then, of course, the new covenant made with Jesus Christ and through his death. So he says, then, verily, the first covenant, that is the law or the Mosaic covenant, it had also ordinances of divine service or it had its rituals and ceremonies, and it had a worldly or an earthly sanctuary, which is what we're looking at here. It had a worldly or, and by that he means an earthly or a material physical sanctuary. By the way, I appreciated uh, all the songs we just sang, but I thought particularly how the first two uh, uniquely uh, were appropriate in tabernacle type of language, you know, before the throne of God above, and I have a strong and perfect plea and the whole thing. In my mind, I think of the contrast between the tabernacle And then, of course, that second one about make me a sanctuary, this was a sanctuary, a place where God dwelled. And now there are two different temples on earth that God recognizes. I don't know if you knew that or not, but back in the day of uh, the Jewish people, after the the portable uh, tabernacle was uh, no longer in use, Solomon built a temple. And that was the temple or the house of God or the house of the Lord of Jerusalem. But in today's world, in the language of the New Testament, there are really two temples that are recognized. You find both of them in the book of 1 Corinthians. And one is the temple that is your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And then secondly, the church in 1 Timothy uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church is called a temple. The local church is a temple. It is a dwelling place for God. You find that also in the book of Ephesians at the end of chapter 2, and you'll find it connected in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So anyway, those two songs were uh, very apropos. 
There was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick. And remember, one of the basic meanings of tabernacle was a tent. And so inside of the big, full structure of the courtyard and um, all of its, everything that was within, there was a tent or a tabernacle. And so, so as I said from the start, sometimes we talk about everything here as being the tabernacle, and that's one way the term is used. And sometimes we talk about more the tabernacle proper, which was this tent here, 45 feet long, 15 feet high, which is represented from this pillar here to this pillar here. It divided into two sections. The first section was 30 feet, and the second section was 15 feet. All in all, they weren't very big when you think about it. And we'll be mentioning more about that in just a moment. And so there was the first tabernacle, or the first part of the tent, and it had certain pieces of furniture which are mentioned, the candlestick, the table, the showbread, and that's called the holy place or the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all or the holy of holies. And it had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now, I am a little bit surprised, uh, but I almost wanted to just let it slide, that nobody asked me the question that one of the questions I'm often asked, and no, it's not about the rope trick, uh, it's uh, the question of why when we read about the Holy of Holies, it says that the, it had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, It reads almost as if it is saying that the golden altar of incense was inside of the Holy of Holies, not on this side. That's what the reading seems to suggest. But it really is more, at least the way I look at it is, it it says it, it had the golden censer or it was in a sense connected with the golden censer. So that the function of the altar of incense, as we were thinking about yesterday, was connected with this in such a way that it was part of that. Because as the priest stood here communing before the veil, he was speaking to the God who was in the Holy of Holies, seated on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, on the lid of the Ark, which was his throne on planet Earth. So now you don't have to ask me. You have my view on that. Yours may be different, but that's fine. I'm I'm giving you mine. And so I want to not shortchange you folks and be sure you get your full uh, benefit from the price of admission. And uh, and so on Friday night, we did something with the young people that probably the most of the folks here uh, did not get to see. And I'm just very briefly, I'm not going to go into it in any length of detail that I went into it with his young people, except just to at least I want to mention it and let you um, get a little bit of what they had on Friday night. And so um, how many of you were here Friday night? You were here, you were here, you were, you were here. Yes. Okay. We said that inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. Can you name one of them? Manna, the golden pot of manna. Yes. Aaron's budding staff. Sam. 
the Ten Commandments, the tables of the law. And we just so happen to have all three of those things right here inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when this session's over, is there a short break? A short break. So during that short break, um, I'm going to leave, you know, our Ark is a little bit different. See, it has a hinged lid. And so you can look inside of it and not have to worry about getting struck by lightning or God or anything else, uh, unlike what they often would do. I'm going to leave the lid open in case you'd like to take a picture of the contents of the ark. And then for the next session, I'll be shutting the lid down. And so the first thing that was in the ark of the covenant, or the first thing I'm going to mention, were the tables of the law, uh, the tables of the commandments, which we have them here inscribed in stone. Now, you didn't have to be here on, you don't, it's not necessary that you were here on Friday night. You may still be able to give me the answer for this anyway. Why do I have a set of uh, the Ten Commandments that are cracked and broken? Timmy, I, I gave you two reasons. What was one of them? Yeah, Moses threw it on the floor. Or Moses, you broke the set of commandments. So this reminds us that this one that was in there was really the second set of Ten Commandments. Because Moses came down and the people were sinning and he broke them and he went back up on the mountain and God wrote them with his finger. And then the second reason, because we were reminded that we've all sinned and we've not been able to keep God's commandments perfectly. We, we can't, haven't kept the law of God perfectly. And so the cracks here, the broken parts remind us of that. Yes, Sam. You had your hand up. Oh, he's stretching again. You're a good stretcher. You know, yesterday it was this arm, so he's making up and getting this one. Yes, I understand. So the the Ten Commandments, and um, one of the things that was important to emphasize with young people is that this was the communication of vital truth to the Israelites. It was a witness and a testimony, and it said things that were true. For instance. Do you remember, because this was a hard one, I don't know that anybody got this the other night, young folks, but um, you know, but then I went over it. Do you remember what I said the fourth commandment was? Well, the fourth commandment had to do with the Sabbath. You will keep the Sabbath holy. Why? Why do they have to keep the Sabbath? Yes. Sabbath was the seventh day. Saturday, yes. In their, in their week, it was the seventh day. They had to keep the Sabbath, the scripture says, well, the, the Ten Commandments said, because in six days God created the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And so you learn a critical truth. You learn that there is a creator, that the world just didn't happen. God is a creator God who created things, and that was a witness to them. And then other things, how you treat your neighbor and how you deal with their property and all those other things. Basically, we were pointing out to the young people yesterday. Say it again. God does not sleep. He doesn't sleep or slumber, the Scripture says. Yes. She wanted to know if he could see when he sleeps. Um if he could see when he sleeps, but no, he doesn't sleep. So we learn those truths. And the other thing I point out to the young people, it's God who makes the rules. Now, people may not like them, but God makes the rules. It's so important in the world we live in today 
particularly for young people who are going to be challenged. Whatever you think is right, whatever somebody else thinks right, whatever somebody says is right. No, God makes the rules. And, of course, the rules we have are what he's given us in the Scripture. Now, hard question. I used one word basically to describe this. Remember I had the white pieces of paper? If you were here, do you remember what one I used for this? You do, yes. You are so right, yes, yes. The truth, yes. Let me just move this here. Put him over here with Mr. Bull. Sit right there. Yes, I said... As you accurately said, the truth. <laughs> I never was an artist. I still am not. The truth. Now, a second thing that we find in here is a golden pot of manna. And we have some right here. Manna. Now, don't try to eat this manna. <laughs> Uh, and somebody looks like trying to take a bite off one of my loaves of bread there, but it's got varnish on it. So you, if you look for the person with the chipped tooth, maybe we'll find him. So they had a golden pot of manna, and we had a little lesson in Hebrew because when the children of Israel saw the manna, they said, What is it? Which in Hebrew is manna. See, you got a lesson in Hebrew too. And so um, as a testimony, they were to take a golden pot of the manna and put it inside of the Ark of the Covenant. What was unique about this manna was that unlike the other manna, because I believe it was in the presence of God, it did not rot if you kept it overnight. Because in God's presence, there's life, you see. And so it was a testimony. And uh, the golden pot of manna. And I, I've never had anybody, and I don't really want to throw you thinking off too much, but um, obviously this is not the real deal, you know, but never had anybody guess what this is made of. So anyway, you can think about that. And then, oh, 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 I almost forgot, didn't I? Yes, we want to keep him out here for now. Um, so in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus fed the multitudes with the loaves and fishes, 5,000, John chapter 6, probably 12,000 if you put in how many men and women and, you know, women and children were along with the crowd. And then they challenged the Lord Jesus and said, well, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness, which really Moses didn't do it. And they ate, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What can you do? What sign can you show us? To which I'm wanting to say, he just fed 12,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. What do you mean, what sign? But part of what they were saying, you know, what you did, that's one and done. They ate manna for 40 years. What can you do? Top that. To which the Lord Jesus did top that. Because he said, I'll tell you this, it wasn't Moses that gave them that manna in the wilderness. God gave it from heaven. But the problem is, they ate that manna and they died. I am the bread of life. If anybody partakes of me, they'll never die. They'll have everlasting life. And so, yeah, he did top that, didn't he? As good as that heavenly food was from heaven, it couldn't give them eternal life. They died. And so, 
We used another word to describe the manna. Can you remember anybody what that one word is to describe? Yes. The life. Yes. Oh, good. The life. And then there was one other thing in the ark. And again, one of the amazing things is that the ark of the covenant, the most probably important thing in the whole of the tabernacle in one sense, because it's a place where God seated himself, it um, only had those three things. I mean, of all the things that could have been put in there, only three. And so one of them was Aaron's. I like the way she said it. What did you call this? What did you call it? You called it. You. Who's, who told me what this was? Lilla. Lilla, yes. You said Aaron's. It was Aaron's budding. Aaron's budding staff. I like that. That sounds so cool. And so, um, and we know this was Aaron's budding staff because it's got his name in Hebrew right there on it, you see. And so I told the young people the story of how this happened, that there was this massive rebellion. It was such a rebellion that it's recorded even in the New Testament as the gainsaying of Korah. And they spoke against Moses and Aaron, against God's high priests and God's representative. And and it was such a serious thing that God says, well, I'm going to show you who the right priest is. And a severe judgment occurred. The earth opened up and swallowed those men down alive into the pit. And then in the next chapter, number 17, God says, I want each of you, I want you to take 12 uh, budding, I'm not budding, but 12 staffs, 12 sticks, walking sticks like, right? And put the names of the 12 tribes on there. And one, of course, for the, for the tribe of Levi, which would have been Aaron. And then we're going to lay those sticks up into the presence of the Lord. And in the morning when they came up, one of those dead sticks had life, come to life. It had flowers and buds and blossoms and even fruit. You see almonds on it. And, and that was the, the way that God pointed out who was the right priest. The one who was the right priest is the one from whom life came out of death. And it was so important to have the, the right priest because the priest is the one who pointed the people to God. And so we said there was one word that described what that indicated. You remember what it is? Any young people remember? Yes. Well, interesting, isn't it? That inside of that Ark of the Covenant which was the Ark of Testimony, you have a testimony of the way, the truth, and the life. And some of these young people, I forget who it was, somebody told me that there's a verse in the New Testament that says that. Did you? Yes. Oh, it wasn't you. But you know that there is? Do you know what it is? What is it? Can you quote it? John fourteen six. Excellent. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So that was a testimony inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Testimony to the way, the truth, and the life. In a box that was made of both wood and covered with gold and had inside of it 
in the very heart of it, if you will, uh, the law of God. Now, one of the things that's interesting about all three of those things is that every one of these three items, each one of these three items, uh, it, it came about as a result of some serious failure or rebellion on the part of Israel. The manna in Exodus chapter 16, the people slandered God. They said, you brought us out here and our children to kill us in this wilderness. What would God do with that people? He gave them bread from heaven. In Exodus, in, in, um, in Exodus uh, 32, in that whole series there, with the law, they'd no sooner hardly come out of Egypt. Moses gone up in the mountain. He comes back down. They made a golden idol, a calf, worshiping that calf, carrying on, doing all kind of other nonsense. And God allowed Moses to go back up bring down a second table of the law. And then, as I just mentioned, the rebellion that occurred, a very serious rebellion in the book of Numbers over the priesthood. And instead of destroying all the people, well, you could read about it there. The priest, Aaron, took the censer of incense, and he went out as the plague was going out among the people. And the scriptures very specifically, a very beautiful portrait there, it says... He stood between the living and the dead, and he stopped the plague of judgment. And it reminds us of our high priest who can stand between the living and the dead in that sense. So wonderful pictures to think about. And now what we'd like to think about is a verse or two further in Hebrews chapter 9 that says that the high priest, I'm sorry, it says in verse 5, talks about the mercy seat. And then it says in verse 6, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went into the first tabernacle, first tabernacle, the first room here, the holy place. They went in there to accomplish the service of God, the ministry or the service of God. So this is, um, again, there are obviously multiple lessons that you learn from some of these things, but I'm going to say it in a very basic way that what went on out here was something that enabled uh, the people to have their sin dealt with by means of sacrifice. But what went on inside of this closed-off room, remember the average Israelite could not go in here, the door of the tabernacle closed off this section, the heavy curtains went over the whole thing, and the veil, of course, closed off the Holy of Holies. So in this 30-foot room here, the priest went in to accomplish the ministry and service to God. Now, it's important to remember that when we think of the altar, we were reminded of the necessity of a sacrifice to bring us to salvation. Of course, Hebrews chapter 10 says, it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And the Lord Jesus came. And the, the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 10, if those Israelites could have, I'm paraphrasing a bit now, if they could have found one sacrifice that would have taken away sins and given them a clear conscience concerning their sin, no guilt, well, they would have stopped coming year after year after year after year after year after year after year. Why would you keep doing that if you could find one? 
And that's the whole point that the writer to Hebrews is getting to. But this man, Jesus Christ, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Any system of religion that continues to sacrifice is ignorant of the finality and finished, complete work of the Lord Jesus. No more sacrifice is needed. Christ never can be sacrificed again. And so, absolutely crucial. But one of the things that we noted is that, as important as that is, and you can't underestimate it at all, when you looked at the imagery of the tabernacle, that there's something that we notice, and that is the decreasing, uh, the increase of value of the materials that are used from the courtyard to the holy place. For this was copper or bronze, you see, and so was the laver. But once you got here, all of this was gold. And then we were thinking yesterday of the, the fact that three of these pieces of furniture had a golden crown around them. And that reminds us, doesn't it, of a crown. We think of the king. We think of uh, majesty and rule and royalty, you see. So while these were important, there was a sense in which this also was very important. The ministry and service of God. We're not just saved to be saved, are we? Ultimately, we're saved to serve. And so, the ministry of God. So, let's think about that for just a minute. It wasn't that this was unimportant, but listen to some of the contrasts that you find here. Out here, the furniture was made of brass or bronze, as we noted, in their gold. Nothing with a crown out here. Three pieces with crowns in there. This, in a sense, spoke of the humbling or the humiliation connected with the earthly things that had to do with sacrifice. When Christ came, he didn't come as a king in that sense, did he? He was born king of the Jews, but he didn't walk around with a crown on his head or a halo or a light shining on him. He humbled himself. He was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, was made a servant. That had to do with everything you see in a sense that took place out here. But this has to do with glory and exaltation and the kingly thoughts of the items that are found there. This has to do in a sense connected. There's a ministry that goes on today. And that reminds us of what took place in the past. This was all private. Very important. This was public. But this was private. Nobody could see what went on in here. Think about that. You mean to tell me there's service and ministry that can go on for God that the world doesn't see? I thought everything we do for God in all our service for God had to do with the world out there and people out there. Well, no, if we take the lesson from the tabernacle, there are things that we do as unto the Lord that don't have anything to do with the world out there. They're strictly for the heart of God. That's something that a lot of folks miss nowadays. They think, well, what a waste of time. Why couldn't the other people go in here and see all these things? But God was teaching a lesson. Only the priest could go in here. As we've been reminded, we all who are saved, we are believer priest. And there's a place and, and a manner in which our ministry and service for God doesn't have anything to do for the world out there. A time when the church comes together to perform the ministry and service of God 
unto him unseen in a sense by the world, if you can think of it that way. And so that was one of the other things. One was private, one was public. Out here, of course, there was no, uh, in here, there was no natural light, natural light here. Sacrifice out here, no sacrifice in here, but service to God. Now, that is a pretty incredible thing when we begin to think about it, that in this holy place, 30 feet long by 15 feet high, the service of God on earth was done. It wasn't a very big place, but that really wasn't what was critical. Nobody could see it, but it was dear to the heart of God. What a lesson for us today when we think about it. Priestly service to God, not for the world. Now, don't hear me wrong, because as I said, as important as salvation is, um, and as important as it is to you know, preach the gospel and to realize we must come by way of the appointed sacrifice, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that has to do with this courtyard, there's another whole side of life, isn't there? What we're called to do is unto the Lord. I want to turn back to the Old Testament and turn to the book of Ezekiel and chapter 44 and make an application. Ezekiel and chapter 44. Ezekiel chapter 44. Now, I believe that this has to do with the future, but nevertheless, there seems certainly to be an application that's here. So you look in verse 11, Ezekiel 44, speaking of the Levites, it says, They will be ministers in my sanctuary, having charge at the gates of the house, and ministering to the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister unto them. So you had something there that was to be done for the people. And that's what was done out here. But watch as it goes on. Verse 15. But the priest, the Levites, the son of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister unto me. You see the contrast? There was something that was to be done for the people. But there's another level, isn't there? And the Lord says the sons of Zadok, they have a higher calling, they shall stand before me to offer the fat and blood, and they'll enter into my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me. Now, I like to always say, if you're ever asked the question, which wing of the airplane is the most important? My answer is, I like both wings to be on the airplane when I'm flying. I think they're both important. And so I'm saying that to say that when we think of what God has called us to do once we are saved, it isn't that there isn't anything to do with the world out there or people out there. Certainly, you can't really serve God without serving people. Think about it. And so there's that service, whether it's in teaching and equipping people to be able to go out and use their gifts 
for the ultimate purpose of, of seeing the church built and expanded through the gospel, whether it's just the doing of good works that ultimately ought to be glorifying God. But there's another side too, you see. The ministry and service to the Lord himself. A time when that takes place. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, 1 Timothy in chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 15, But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of truth. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Some people are surprised that, that if you say, listen, um, not everything in the house of God is for you. There should be some things in the house of God that are for him. Ministry and service to the heart of God. Now you say, what does that look like? Uh, you know, and, and, and break it down in a way that is applicable. I hope you don't take me wrong. Um, because I don't mean to be narrow-minded in the sense that some people think you might be. There may be other applications of this. But certainly it seems to me, in my thinking from what I have gleaned from Scripture, that when we come together to remember the Lord on the first day of the week, that that is a meeting that is primarily designed not for the world. It is designed for believers in Jesus Christ. And it is one time when we come together as a church, not so much to get something, but to minister to the heart of God, to offer the one thing that God is pleased with, and that is his son. And so that is why when we come together at the Lord's Supper, we try to keep the focus on Christ, you see. It's not about me. It's not about what I get. Now, I don't know anybody who has been remembering the Lord for a number of years who who wouldn't say, listen, every time I come, it's such a blessing. <laughs> but that's not the goal. We don't come for a blessing. And so when our songs are focused on lifting up Christ and the person and work and glory of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, to the Father, and when our prayers and when our reading of Scripture is designed to bring out the glories and the beauty of, of God's Son to the Father, that is ministry to the heart of God. And I'll tell you, I... I'm a, I'm a terrible gardener. I'm a kind of a consistent gardener. Okay, Luke, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I kill all plants equally. Okay. <laughs> they, many a plant has died at my hand. And I mean, some of the craziest things. How can you not plant a hibiscus in Florida and have it, you know, grow into a doggone tree? You know, mine wither and die. But I like plants. And I haven't planted a vegetable garden where we live now, but when we used to live in Sorrento in uh, Lake County, 
um, we, I had a little vegetable garden. Now, it was only, you know, like 10 feet by 20 feet. So it's not like I'm feeding the world, you know, with the vegetable garden. But I love to watch that stuff grow. Every day I'd get up and I'd look out there and I'd see, are the tomato plants blossoming, you know? Are the, is the kale coming up, you know, and, and whatever else I had planted. I just loved it, you know? Some people like vegetable gardens. Some people like flower gardens. Some people like succulent gardens with all sorts of cactus and other things like that. But the point is, this world, in a sense, is a big, wide wilderness. It is a barren place in this sense that for the most part, the world does not love God's Son. But God looks down, and here and there, it's like these little gardens places on the earth who love God's Son. And they're coming together to express that we're not here about a man. This isn't about man's glory or what man can do or even to listen to a great preacher or something like that. We're here because the Son of God has drawn our hearts out unto Him and we want to, Father, present Him to you. Failures though we might be, faltering lips and all the rest, bad singing sometimes. (laughs) But our hearts, Lord, are to provide that fragrant aroma that you receive in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And worship is produced. And God looks down. He says, yes, there's a little garden. They love my son. It's not so very far off from Scripture because one of the Pictures that's drawn in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, You are God's husbandry. You are God's cultivated field. You're one of those little gardens. And so, you know, where there could have been some people who, who might have said, Who said that, by the way? Was it Judas that said that? I get mixed up sometimes. Did... Who said when the Lord Jesus was anointed with that ointment and the woman didn't say a word, what a waste. This could have been used to feed the poor. Well, there's a worthy cause, feeding the poor. There's a place for feeding the poor. But the Lord Jesus says in as much, this wasn't a waste. This woman did this against the day of my burying. She really understood in her female intuitive way, perhaps, or spiritual link or whatever it was, more than the disciples did. Because every time the Lord said he was going to the cross, they said, no, you're not going to go to the cross. And he even said, no, we're not going to let that happen. What are you talking about, you know? And this woman recognized, I'm going to pour out on the Lord that which was very costly and that which was very fragrant. And I'm going to do it while he's living. But she recognized, I'm going to anoint him for his burial now before he ever dies in a sense, you see. And the Lord said, wherever the gospel is preached, this is going to be in there. People are going to hear about this woman. It wasn't a waste. Yes, there's a place to feed the poor. Yes, there's a place to preach the gospel. Yes, there's a place to do good works. Yes, there's a place for all of that. But there's another place too. And the picture here was, nobody saw what went on in here. Well, almost nobody. The Lord did. And it was ministry and service to God in a 30-foot space on planet Earth that pleased the heart of God. 
so may the Lord help us to think through that a little bit and uh, think through all of the implications uh, that there are with that. Now, I'm going to stop from there because I forget what time I'm supposed to stop, but I'm stopping now. I always like to quit when I'm done. And, uh, and so I'm going to bring the three things back into the Ark of the Covenant. And if you want to come up and get a picture of that, feel free to do so. And we'll just, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, I hate to put this on you, would you close in a word of prayer and then we'll have a little break for our next session? Yes, thank you.